So I have a quick quiz for you to start. And the quiz is, who are these men? Any ideas? I particularly like this photo. It's got a good moustache. Any idea who they are? Oh, good guess, but I'm afraid it's not. Any ideas? Not Mussolini? Less famous than that, I do apologise. How about this chap here? Not my kind of name, not Caesar. No. Any ideas? No. It's not Stalin. Less famous than that. But uh, there's a reason for, like, not, not I'm trying to like, trip you up or show you how clever I am. I have no idea who he is until I looked him up this week because somebody told me to. I'll let you know who they are. And it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's a good thing that Kat's not here this week or a shame because uh, this chap on the left is French and I don't know how to pronounce his name. So either Andre Maginot or Maginot. Maginot. But if we're, uh, yeah. Like if I was still in Derbyshire, it'd be Maginot. Um, and this chap on the, on the right is Alexander the Great. Okay. And, um, and I just sort of put these chaps up because apparently uh, Alexander the Great is one of the best generals that the world has ever seen like in conquest, in battle. And a part of that was because he could just travel, you know, he could move his army so quickly that he could outflank his enemy and he could just take them out no matter what they were doing, where they were. He knew how to keep people moving. Um, Magno was vaguely responsible for the vaguely, fairly instantaneous defeat of France during the Second World War because he had the idea that let's not move, let's entrench ourselves, build a, a string of walls and just sort of camp behind them and um, France really didn't last all that long in the Second World War. So there's our two extremes. There's a let's stand still and fight or let's move and fight. Well, hopefully that will come useful in a minute or two. So this is the verse we've got. So today we're looking at, um, at this verse and it says it's from Ephesians 6 and it's verse 15. Uh, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Okay, so that's the verse that we're looking at today. And um, in Romans 5 verse 1 we uh, have this verse. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I put verse 2 on, but I have. Um, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. Great. So that's the beginning of Romans, uh, chapter 5. And it's been really interesting this week. I've been reading through Romans uh, on my own recently, and I've been taking one chapter of Romans and reading it every day of the week. And then the next week I start in the next chapter. And this week, this has been uh, the chapter I've been reading, chapter 5. And I was just amazed that it came up at the right time for it to fit in with what I've got to say, hopefully. So I thought, what is, okay. yeah, what is this gospel of peace? That's something we need to start with. If we don't know what the gospel of peace is, how can we have our feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace? I hope that makes sense. So my question is, what is the gospel of peace to start with? And I think part of this it's a good thing to start off with is saying, actually, at the moment, there'll be some people in this room who understand and know and are in a relationship with God, then they're at peace with God because of this gospel, and this peace is to do between us and God. So there'll be some people here who are at peace with God, and some people who aren't. And the gospel of peace, we'll try and explain it, but that's, there's only two sides to this, this peace. Either we have it with God, 
or we don't have it with God. There's not a kind of third category where we sit in the middle and think, well, it looks interesting. I'm not an enemy of God. I don't like actively go around you know, hurting Christians and do things like that. But actually, there's no two options. There's either we're at peace with God, and we know it definitely, or we're not at peace with God, and we maybe don't know it, or we maybe do know it. So firstly, I thought, what type of peace is it? Is it subjective, or is it an objective peace with God? Well, I've written my definitions down so I don't stumble over my words. And I thought, if it's subjective, what does that mean? If something's subjective, whatever it is can change. So as we, uh, so no matter like if I'm feeling peaceful, then you know that's kind of a subjective peace. So if it's subjective, it can change um, and feel as though it's gone. If my circumstances change, or you know I'm just in a bit of a mood. So if it's subjective, it can change based on how I feel or think. But if it's objective, it remains the same no matter how I'm feeling or what I'm doing or my circumstances are. I think in Romans 5, it speaks very clearly that this peace with God is not subjective, but it's objective. Um, it's difficult, isn't it? When you start, somebody starts a reading in church and it starts with therefore, therefore is one of those words that you have to think actually... Somebody started reading, therefore, I need to know what comes before, because this, this is something that follows what comes before. So Romans chapter 4, which I was reading last week, is talking about uh, being justified through faith. It talks about Abraham, and it says, are we justified by what we do, or are we justified by faith? And Romans 4 basically says, we are definitely justified by faith. And then, in Romans 5, it says, therefore, that we've been justified by faith, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which is what he's talking about, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And justification is a, it's a legal matter. It's, it means that between us and God, our, you know, our standing is legally set. And if we're justified by faith, we, we stand in a position with God where all of the things that we've done wrong have been taken by Jesus. And we stand at peace with God because there's nothing that God um, sees in us that he doesn't like. No sin or anything like that. Therefore, as Christians, we can know that we have peace with God and that it's certain as a result of what Jesus has done. And we can be justified and therefore we have peace with God. And the thing is that peace here, it's not... Sometimes we think of peace and think, if I could just get a bit of peace, you know, it might, people might have a different idea of what their peace is. And a, bit, a bit of peace for you might be a quiet house. It might be a nice long bath. That's just really peaceful. It might be whale song might even just be feeling happy. But in the Bible, it doesn't talk about that. The chap who writes this letter, Paul, says that you can know peace with God. And he is somebody who was beaten, like a stone thrown at him. He was shipwrecked three times. He spent his life you know, being chased and hounded by people who didn't like him. But he knew peace with God. And he knew that it wasn't subjective. If it was subjective, he would never have had any peace. But he knew it was objective and he knew that God had sorted it out for him. So he knew um, that he was at peace with God. So then the next question I think we need to ask is, do I need this peace? Do I need this peace with God? Well, it's something that Ian said in one of his uh, earlier sermons in this series. He said that when we die, we're not going to stop existing. We're not going to just disappear forever. Actually, as individuals, we've been created in God's image and we have a soul that will last for eternity. So when we think, do I need this peace with God? The first thing is we have to be aware that 5,000 years from now, we're all going to be conscious and aware. And I think we need to be aware of what's going to come. 
So do I need this peace with God? Ultimately, you don't need it. You don't, you don't need it. But if you don't get it, you remain God's enemy, not just for this life, but for eternity. If we don't have peace with God, we don't stop existing when we die. We carry on, but we continue eternally under his wrath. We're separated from all his goodness. We're separated from all God's love. And we're separated from community. I think uh, when the Bible talks of hell, it talks of a place of isolation as well as uh, eternal torment. Because God is creating community. He wants us to live in community. So I think in hell that's something that is taken away. So ultimately, do I need this peace with God? I don't need it. I'll not like die now if I don't get it. But if I want to know God and his goodness for eternity, then I do need it. So then the question is, how do I get it? If that idea of you know, eternal torment and isolation is something that is not appealing, and to be honest it's not, objectively, um, what do I need to do? Well, in Romans 5, I'll read you verse 8 to 11 again, it said, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. So basically Paul says, if you want to know peace with God, be reconciled to God, you have to get to him through faith in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to take away all the sin of the world. And we can have that taken from us if we put our faith and our trust and our belief in Jesus. There's a great sermon in the book of Acts where Peter's preaching and he gets interrupted and somebody says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, look, you need to repent and believe and be baptised in Jesus. Okay, so let's get on to um, the shoes, the sandals, as the readiness of the gospel of peace. But I think it's interesting, isn't it? If you were going to, if somebody said to you, write down all the armour that you would expect like a soldier to wear, you might go helmet, sensible, don't want your head getting smashed in, shield, basically if you can keep it away from you, good idea, sword, you can attack, you don't have to punch them, you've got a bit of distance still, uh, breastplate, that's sensible, don't anything getting through to your chest. That's where all like lots of vital organs are. Um, what else could you have? You know, all those sorts of things. Nobody's going to say sandals. No one's really going to say shoes. But I think shoes are more important than we give them credit for. And I'll give you um, a reason why. The other week, me and Hannah were in Cornwall. Uh, we were on a campsite, and we were there with Nick and Claire and the two children. And on this campsite, they've got a load of picnic benches dotted around. And if no one's using them, you can just take them, you lift them up, boom to your pitch, put them down, and you can like commandeer it for a week or two. Uh, when Hannah's parents are there, her mum immediately clips a tablecloth onto it. Um, and I was disgusted this year that my parents weren't there and we didn't have a tablecloth all week. So uh, that, that was terrible. Very uncouth, as you would say. Um, but me and Nick went out looking for, for a picnic bench. And I had my flip-flops on. Nick didn't. And we found a picnic bench. We weren't certain it was not being used, but we thought, well, we'll take it and we'll come back later and check it wasn't. It didn't look like it was being used. There was nothing on it. Um, so we picked it up. Quite a, a big, heavy picnic bench. Took wood, picked it up, and we had to walk across. Like, it was all grass, and then we walked across the road, 
which was sort of a, it's like just sort of, um, what's the word, gravel, spiky gravel. And I had my shoes on, so I could pick it up and walk across fine. And Nick was, ooh, ooh, uh, 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 until we got across the other side of the grass. So shoes are more important than we give them credit for. Um, and again, that is objective. So, I've got some pictures here of what a Roman soldier's sandals might look like and what they might look like a couple of thousand years later after they've been dug up. So they were kind of leathery things. They had a really thick sole and they had studs on them. So footballers weren't the first people to use studs. Um, I think the Greeks were before the Romans, but the Romans definitely used them. So they had studded soles for extra grip. They had really thick soles to protect them from the things underfoot. You wouldn't want something really thin or anything underneath could uh, get through and hurt you. And they were lightweight. They weren't like really heavy um, boots so that you could move around, you could run about, and they could kind of jump around in battle. I was talking to one of my friends who studied classics at university. I was asking him about the Romans fighting. So I was really interested in the idea of the shield of faith, maybe protecting somebody else in battle because they used to walk around very tight at the Romans. But he said, somebody recently uh, has found out that the Romans sort of spent a bit of time further apart when they were fighting. They'd fight in... You know, so they'd fight 20 minutes, have 40 minutes off, and they'd fight in threes, and then do that. And they'd jump around an awful lot, so they had a lot of space, and they'd fight. And they needed their shoes like this to be able to do that. If they were slippy, if there was no studs, they could have slipped over, and you know, they'd have been for it, as soon as they were on the floor. So that's vaguely what their shoes would have looked like. So they had studs, they had thick soles, and they were lightweight. So I'll take these one at a time, and um, hopefully learn something from them. So we're going to look at them in three ways. And the first one is they had a good grip. And I've got there that a good grip means that we can stand. So if you were in, a, in the midst of the battle and it was all a bit like um, churned up, you know, like sometimes they are on football pitches, if people are played on them a bit, they'll get really muddy and slippy and the football players need the studs actually to, to be able to stand up better and run about. Um, for these guys, they needed the good grip so that they could stand up. So if you think about it, in battle, the last place you want to be is lying on the floor. If you're lying on the floor, you're not moving, and you're definitely easy pickings for your enemy. So the first thing I think is, when Paul talks about their shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, the first thing we have to realise is, these are things that we have to get, and we have to put on, we actually have to use these things that Paul's saying. So we need to be able to get up and put our shoes on. Some of the commentators... Uh, make a big deal about the fact that we have to get these things and use them. These are not things that, that we just get and it's lovely. They're not like an ornament. They're things we get and they're for battle and we put them on and we use them. And ultimately, these shoes that we're getting are the shoes of the gospel of peace. And the gospel must be our foundation. When we stand upon it, it's strong. And we won't get a stronger foundation than the gospel. The gospel is the most amazing thing in the whole world. And if we have that as our foundation, nothing will be able to knock us over. Nothing will be able to, to catch us off guard. So if you have the gospel as your foundation, you won't find a stronger one anywhere else. And secondly, if we have a good grip in our shoes, it means we won't slip. And I thought this in a couple of ways. If we, get a, if we get a hold of the gospel, if we get a hold of the fact that Jesus loves me that much, that he'd come out of glory where he had everything he ever needed, come to this earth, live his whole life from a little baby to a grown man and then die on a cross in my place. If I understand that Jesus loves me that much, I won't slip out of love with Jesus because he's shown me how much he loves me and I'll just be overawed by what he's done for my whole life. It's not something I'll get over. 
It's not something I think, oh, that was nice. It's not like a Christmas present that you think, I really, really want that, I really want that, I really want that. You get it and then you don't. It's something you get and you think, this is amazing. It gets better and better the longer you know it. So firstly, we won't slip out of love with Jesus because it shows us just how much Jesus loves us. And the other thing I think it will help us not to slip on is if we get a really good understanding of the gospel, if we understand that, it will help us not to slip to extremes. Because I think if we start slipping to extremes, we start to disbelieve the gospel. And I'm, I, I was trying to, I, I did wonder if I had a photo of this. It was again on our uh, on holiday the other week. We'd gone to, we'd been playing tennis, and there's a play park just next to the tennis thing to entertain the children. And then I was doing my best trying to entertain them. Not at tennis, I was awful. But I went on the, Esther wanted to go on the seesaw, and she's only little. And I went on the other end, and I'm a lot bigger than she is. Um, and I had Isaac as well, and he's not small. So I was trying to sit really near the pivot point in the middle to try and balance it. Whatever I did, even if she was right on the end, it, we couldn't balance. And then Claire came and like, took Esther, sat on the very end with Esther, and I was sat as near to the middle as I could, and still we were right down at my end. So it's really not a great idea to be off balance, no matter what you're trying. So I think if we really understand the gospel, we'll not slip to, it, to extremes. We won't spend our time looking into strange theologies and doctrines and getting really caught up with one particular doctrine, because if we do, we start to get off balance. We start thinking, maybe, maybe that's the main thing in Christianity. So whatever it is, some people have, you know, they have a their understanding of maybe the end times and they get really caught up in it and they really love their version of end time theology and they get really excited about it and they want to talk about it all the time but they don't talk about the gospel and they start to get a bit off balance and they're not talking to people about the gospel they're talking to people about you know, this idea that they've got hold of we don't want to spend our time looking at, at, at different doctrines so much that we start to stop looking at the gospel and I think our, our grip on the gospel has to shape the way we look at everything else. And I think that's really important for us as Christians. If we get the gospel, everything else makes more sense if we have a really clear view of it. Okay, secondly, we said that uh, the shoes of the Romans had a really th- uh, a thick, protective sole. And it turns out, I, didn't, I had no idea they'd do this, the enemies of the Romans, they knew that they would, they'd march a long way. So what they'd do is they'd, get, they'd make spikes they were maybe an inch or two inches big, and they'd put them on the ground, um, and so they'd sort of be covered in leaves. And the plan was, obviously, if you were an army marching along, and you had thin soles, and the guys at the front got their feet, you know, snarled up, and they got spikes went through the bottom of their shoes, and ripped their feet up. Well, one, they'd probably fall over immediately, and the army would come to a halt. And those guys, well, their feet would be ripped up, and they'd be awful. And the chances are that they'd get an infection, it could affect them, it could even kill them. And they'd be totally ineffective. So they needed a really protective soul to keep them safe so that they could carry on fighting. But I think for us as a Christian, if we get the gospel, the protective soul of the gospel helps us to understand that we can face the lies of the devil. Because the armour that we're given in in Ephesians 6 is about standing against our enemy, the devil. And um, we chatted a bit in the office a while ago about what the the name of the devil means. And Ian was telling me that it's sort of to, to shoot through a hoop that it's trying to, to separate things that should be together. Apparently the word diabolical comes from that. And I think, like the, if you read through, through Ephesians, you kind of get two themes that run, run through. The devil's trying to separate things from us in two ways. He's trying to separate us and God. 
So I think it's like if you get if you get like a, a doorstop and start hammering it into something that's solid, eventually if you can push it in far enough, it'll break and it'll separate. And I think that's what the devil's trying to do there. That's what he t- talks about in Ephesians. Um, the devil wants to separate our relationship between us and God. So that's the first one. And the second one is that he wants to separate our relationships between each other, particularly within the church. So I think they're the two ways that the devil tries to attack us. So we'll look at our relationship between us and God first. I think there are some, there are some common like, lies that the devil can give us, and we see them throughout the Bible. The first one is, you know, God's holding out on you. God's really got a lot more that he can give you, and he's not giving it to you. I think this is a lie that um, Adam and Eve fell for in the Garden of Eden. You know, God's got an awful lot more, and if you just do this, you'll be like him. You'll get all of the understanding that God's got, and they fell for it. Another one is that, that God's a killjoy. But Jesus says in John there that he came to bring life, and life to the fullest. Another one might be that the devil tells us that God actually needs you to feel loved himself. Or it might be almost the opposite way around. God doesn't really love you at all. These might be lies that crop up and, and haunt us a bit. But I think the gospel directly answers all of these, uh, all these accusations that the devil throws at us. And I think we need to get really good at practicing how to do that. So if, if, um, if you get this sort of thing, actually, is God holding out on me? Is, has God got more for me than, I, than I've got from him now? Well, when we look to the Bible, when we look to the gospel, we think, actually, what more could God have given for me? Is God holding out on me? Well, not in the slightest. And even more than that, in, in the Romans verse, it says... But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still separated from God, while we were hating God, Christ died for us. Whilst we were separated from God, Jesus came to earth and he lived and he died for us. So if God's holding out on us, that wouldn't be true. So if if we ever feel, is God holding out on me? The answer to that is definitely not, because the gospel is true. Jesus was in glory and he gave himself for me. I think God, it's got a killjoy. Is that, is, that, is that what God's really like? How does the gospel answer that question? So, well, well, Jesus loves me so that I can be at peace with God, so I can get a real good understanding of, of who I am. I can get my freedom in Christ. I'm not no longer bound up to things that I used to do. He's liberated me to be the person he wants me to be. And that will bring me great joy. God needs me to feel, God needs me to feel loved. I think, actually... In the gospel, I didn't love God at all, and he loved me. You know, he doesn't need me to feel loved. In his, in his whole person, in the Trinity, God loves himself in an amazing way. And he doesn't need me to feel loved, but still he chose to love me. And then the, the idea that God doesn't really love us at all. Well, when we read through the Bible, we just see that God loves us that much that he sent Jesus to come and die for us. And we just have to practice using the gospel. We have to understand the gospel so we can use it as something to protect us from these lies. And the second bit is that we don't need to fear fear the devil anymore. There are a couple of uh, great verses in the New Testament. I'll just look over to find them. It's always difficult at the air towards the end of the Bible. People always seem to reorder the books when I'm looking for them. But in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, it took me ages to find this verse. I thought, I'm sure it's at the beginning of Peter. I felt it's in 1 Peter 1. And I Maybe it's 1 Peter 3. wasn't there either. 2 Peter 3. wasn't there. Then I checked it uh, on the computer. 
2 Peter 1 verse 3. So there we go. In this it says, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So God says that through Jesus, we're given everything we need for life and godliness. And the second verse to uh, quickly point to is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's verse 13. And, uh, And he says this, No temptation has seized you, Except what, is common to man. except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Okay. So these are two great promises in the New Testament. Firstly, we've been given in God, in Christ, everything we need for life and godliness. Which is amazing, isn't it? God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And secondly, there is no temptation too great for us to withstand it. And even when it comes, when we think, oh, that would be really, I'm sure I'd really enjoy doing that, God provides us a way of escape from doing it. I think what he's saying now is, you know, we don't need to fear the temptation that the devil leads us towards if we're really hidden in Jesus. If we've had our sins forgiven, if we love Jesus, you know, we don't have to We've got everything we need for life and godliness and we don't have to fall into temptation because God's provided us a way out. And I think those two things give us sort of two um, truths that follow. The first one is that God really loves us and he really provides for us. Because through Jesus we've got everything we need for life and godliness. And there's nothing too great for us to bear. But the second truth that follows is that then before God we have no excuse when we do mess up. Which, you know, that's a shame, really. It'd be so much better if we had an excuse. Ah, oh, sorry, I messed up. But it was too hard. Because you can just go, in Corinthians, it said it's not. To Peter, it said you have everything you need for life and godliness. Uh, one of the, I listened to a sermon on this and he said, the armour of God is a bit like an airfix kit. You buy it and you've got everything you need to make, you know, a and it was Spitfire, or whatever it is. So everything you need in the airfix it to make a Spitfire. And you don't get to enjoy it unless you take it out of the box and put it together and use it. The armour of God is like that, he says. It's great, we've got everything we need in the armour of God for life and godliness. But unless we pick it up and put it on, it's going to be no use to us whatsoever. An airfix box is pretty dull, but the model is splendid and tremendous. We need to pick up the armour of God and put it on and use it. So there's just two verses that are really encouraging and really challenging at the same time. God really does love us and he really provides for us, but we also have no excuse before God for when we sin. And then our last one is we have, with uh, the sandals of the readiness of the gospel of peace, we have the ability to adapt. And um, this is where those two chaps, the pictures of the, you know, moustache man and the stone face of um, Alexander the Great came in we can respond to the tactics of the devil so they, one of them was you know, we'll stand still and we'll just fight from where we are and the other one was let's move and, uh, and fight as we you know it is best so as Christians we don't really get the option of entrenching ourselves and sort of covering ourselves with the gospel and saying you know what I'm, I'm going to become a Christian I'm just going to dig a hole I'll sit in it 
and I'll put like a, a manhole cover on my head that is just the gospel and that's all I'll need and I'll just like bury myself in and that'll be great. You know, nobody will, nobody will, you know, they'll, nobody will see me, no one will get to me and I'll be protected by the gospel. But what use will it be? You'll be on your own, have no community, you'll not be able to do anything. We'll actually make no difference if that's what we do. If as Christians, we all go home and bury ourselves you know, in the ground in where, 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 wherever you want to bury yourself and put the, the gospel over our head and like hide, we'll make no difference whatsoever. If that was the case, Paul would have said, and take the manhole of the gospel of peace. He doesn't, he says, take the sandals of the gospel of peace so that we can put them on and that we can move. And I think we need to, to learn to respond with the gospel any time temptation comes our way. And when Jesus goes into the desert and he's tempted by the devil, every time the devil tempts him to do something, Jesus responds straight away with verses from the Bible. He says, look, take, take these stones and make them into bread. Because clearly you're really hungry. You've not eaten for ages. It says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we need to know what the Bible says so that when temptations come our way, we can respond to it with the gospel. And secondly, the, devil says, uh, the Bible says that the devil is the father of lies. So to believe him on anything would be particularly stupid. Um, and the devil doesn't have the power to make us sin. Sometimes people say, oh, the, the devil's really, you know, the, the devil made me do it. I, could, I couldn't help myself. The devil made me do it. The devil can't make us do anything. Sometimes it's just a really easy option to say, oh, the devil made me do it. I couldn't help myself. No, my hands are tied. It's out of my hands. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help myself. Actually, that's not what the Bible says at all. It says the devil doesn't have the power to make you sin. He can tempt you. It can make things look really enticing. It can be that little voice in your ear that says, go on, it would be really good. It would be really good if you do this. And as soon as you do it, he flips around and says, how can you call yourself a Christian? Well, look at what you've done now. Jesus can't love you because of what you've done. We don't have to listen to him. And he doesn't have the power to make it sin. And our last point on here is that understanding the gospel means that we have the ability to respond to our culture. There's a chap called Martin Lloyd-Jones who's written... Well, bookshelves worth of books, like loads and loads of books. He's written two books on the ten verses in Ephesians from um, 10 to 20. And one of them's like this thick, and the other one is about this thick. They're about the same. So he's written two massive books on these ten verses. And I was reading through his stuff on, on just on this verse in particular, and he's written two chapters. One of them... He talks about some of the things that we've talked about up to now. And the second chapter he calls mobility. And he basically has a bit of a go at the people in the church. He says, he says what are you doing? If you've got the gospel, you need to be effective. You need to like, get people on board. You need to be able to show that to people. Why is the church today looking like it did 500 years ago? I mean, what are, things have moved on. What are you doing? And the thing is that people will still now be trying to copy what he was doing in his ministry. And if he knew that, he'd be turning his grave thinking, what are you doing? That was effective back then, but now it's a waste of time. What are you up to? Which I thought was excellent, but it's really difficult, isn't it? Some people really like things that we've done for ages. But he says that adaptation, being able to respond to our culture, is really important. It's, It's not the gospel that we change. It's the way that we present it. And he said it's the way that we present the church as well. If somebody from the outside comes into the church and sees, you know, people all talking in these and thous and, and singing songs that nobody knows the words to and using like words that, you know, even Christians don't know what they mean, they'll think, what? 
what is this? This just is completely alien to anything I've ever seen. And I can't understand it. And actually what we do then is we start putting barriers up between people and the gospel. He says, sort of time and time again in that, that chapter he writes, that we need to make sure that people can understand the gospel. We don't change the gospel. The gospel is what it is. But the way we present it to people has to be accessible. So actually, you know, it's really good as well that sometimes we change the way we do things. Particularly, say, for our soldiers out in Afghanistan, it'd be really bad if we, like, you know, drop them off with horses and swords. They'd have no... They'd, you know, they'd be taken instantly, wouldn't they? If they had horses and swords, that'd be awful. But they haven't. Things have moved on and have been effective. Things need to change. And viruses kind of change the way that they look, don't they, so they can, can be more effective, they can last. Um, so I think as the church... We need to be accessible to our culture. And sometimes people are a bit scared about this idea because they think the culture is full of, you know, out there it's full of like sinful people and we shouldn't do anything that culture does. And some people kind of, you know, um, like have a bit of a play on this. They say, we, as a church, we shouldn't do anything that non-Christians do. You know, non-Christians love carrots. We'll not eat carrots. Non-Christians, well, they listen to rock music. Let's not listen to rock music. Non-Christians... Go to the cinema. Let's not go to the cinema. Non-Christians breathe air. Let's not breathe air. It just gets a bit pointless. We have to understand our culture and be effective to it. Culture isn't bad. And actually in Revelation it says that in heaven there will be all sorts of tribes, cultures and nations. So cultures aren't bad. And if we're going to win souls from our culture, we have to be able to interact with it. Strapping on the shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace isn't including the traditions that we love so dearly. This is one of the things that struck me when I was reading through Martin Lloyd-Jones' things. He sort of specifically says this and he points it out, and I think he's trying to be quite provocative because he had a, you know, had a lot of people that read his stuff. And he said, you know what? When we take on the gospel, we don't take on the traditions of the church that we just like and the, the way we do things. They're not part of the gospel. The gospel is what it is. The gospel tells me that God loves me, that I'm a sinner, that Jesus came and died for me, and through his life, death, resurrection and ascension, I can be at peace with God. It doesn't tell me the, the type of Bible I have to read. and It doesn't tell me the way that we have to do church on a Sunday um, or that we even have to be on a Sunday. It doesn't tell me exactly which theology I have to pick up and, and like. It doesn't tell me how I have to do things. And it's the gospel that will last forever, not the way we do things. And that was something that just really struck me and I thought, it's so easy to get used to doing things the same way because that's what we've always done. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is the timeless, um, timeless thing that says we can know peace with God through Jesus. So just as we finish, I have two questions that I want to leave you with. The first one is this. Have you got and do you know that you have peace with God? If you have, excellent. If you haven't, the answer to that is the gospel. The fact that Jesus loves you, that he came out of glory, that he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for our sin, he rose again because God was satisfied with his, his substitutionary atonement. They're words that don't mean an awful lot in culture. The fact that Jesus took our sin, he suffered in our place, and that he rose again. And now he's up with God and he actually is kneeling before God and he's praying for all of us. So have you got peace with God? If you have, excellent. If you haven't, I just urge you to get it. Trust Jesus. Repent of your sin. And follow him. And the second question that I've got for you is this. 
have you got your shoes on? And I don't mean before you leave, because it'll be painful on the road outside. I mean, if you know peace with God, are you actually walking in a way that says, I know peace with God, therefore, I can face the lies of the devil. I don't need to fear him. I can make a difference in my culture. As a church, do we do that corporately? And individually, do we do that as well? So I'm going to leave you with those two questions to finish. So I'll pray. And then we'll carry on. Father, we thank you for the gospel of peace. Father, we thank you that it's something you had planned before the beginning of the world. Father, we thank you that uh, we can know peace with you. And Father, we thank you that it's not something we deserve, but it's something you choose to graciously offer to us. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and everything that he did, his perfect life. Father, we thank you for his perfect death on the cross. And we thank you, Father, that you were satisfied with all of that and you brought him back to life. Father, we thank you that he ascended into heaven so that we one day can go there and be with him and be with you for eternity. Father, we pray for those people who who don't know that, who don't know you, who don't uh, have a grasp of the gospel, who don't love Jesus. Father, I pray that you'll help us to know how to best explain the gospel and, and be a good example of the gospel so that they can see that for themselves, that they can love Jesus for themselves, that they can know peace with you. Father, I pray you'll help us to, to understand again there that there's no middle ground, there's no option of, of not being at war with you and, um, and being at war with you. There's only, that's it. Father, I pray that you'll help us to get a real grasp of that. Father, I pray you'll help us to be um, good at sharing the gospel with our friends in all the different places that we are. Father, I pray you'll help us to shape our lives around the gospel. Father, I just thank you again that you love us that much, that Jesus gave his life for me and for us. Father, I pray you'd help us as well to guard our relationships with you and to guard our relationships with each other. Father, help us to be focused on you so that things that we do different and things that that wind each other up, Father, they, they pale into insignificance because Jesus loves us that much and that's what we really care about. Father, I just pray that you would help us as a church as well to be um, really gospel-focused, really gospel-centred and really um, all out knowing what you've done for us and really sharing that with other people that we meet. Father, I thank you for the gospel. Father, I pray that you would shape our lives around it and on it. Amen.